talk about when I first thought about Tom Watson at the British Open. You have to go back to April that year. Tuesday of Augusta, 2009. It's raining. It's kind of cold and miserable. There's not that many people there. Even the patrons didn't want to show up that day. But I'm going out to play a few holes. And uh, I go to the first tee, and there's Tom Watson. Hey, you want to join up? So, sure. We go out on the golf course. It's wet. It's cold. It's windy. He's hitting these drives that are just like low bullets. And in the crosswinds, they're just going straight. And every shot he hits is like out of the center of the club face. He's flagging iron shots and hybrids. And he's just hitting these beautiful chips around the greens. My thought was, this guy could really do something at the British Open. Hello, this is Alan Shipnuck, back for another podcast for The Knockdown. Thanks, as always, for listening. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined by Stuart Sink, who is resurgent at the age of 45, coming off a very strong showing at the PGA Championship, and uh, has a big smile on his face, must be feeling good about his game. <laughs> Stuart, thanks for doing this. Sure, yeah, my pleasure. So, you've been out here a long time, and you've, you've been through a lot. Are you entering the, the final act of your career, or do you feel like you're just... Uh, you're reborn and you're just getting started again. Where are you kind of emotionally at this point? It's hard to say because golf has such a freeform sort of characteristic about it with your career. You know, um, the Champions Tour just adds this extra level of vagueness to your retirement date. <laughs> and um, your your age really, it, there's not such a hard sort of fall off like there is in other sports where you just reach a point where you say, okay, well, I know I'm not going to be playing anymore when I'm 38 or, you know, running back might even say like, I, I know I'm not going to be in the league anymore when I'm 28 and golf. You, you don't think that way because uh, you can keep going and, and your body never really feels like, well, at least mine hasn't, it doesn't feel like I need to stop. And really it's just going to come down to when I kind of get tired of playing. And so far that's not happening. And I mean, you have such a nice, long, fluid swing. It seems like you could do that for another 15 years. No problem. <laughs> It's funny how people always say that about my swing being nice and long and fluid and all that, but it, it, it doesn't feel that way. It feels kind of jerky and, you know, cramped up and all that. Uh, but, you know, when I see it, I understand what they mean, but it doesn't always feel that way. Well, you know, golf fans know that you took a, a break around 2016 to care for your wife. And um, obviously that was that was a break in, in golf, but also mentally. How are, how is she doing? And as you come back, you know, full time now, how how are you refreshed and recharged? Are, are you have you taken away some of your your worries on the golf course? You have a larger perspective. I mean, how how did that change you? Yeah, all of those things. Um, first of all, she's doing really well. She's past her. She's about two and a half years now from her diagnosis, and she's gone through her her chemo. Um, she never had surgery or radiation. Just you know, her every case is like case one of one. So in her case, those weren't appropriate for her. She just did her chemo, and she still gets treatment every three weeks. So um, she's a stage four cancer patient, so she'll have in pretty much indefinite treatment, and uh, we don't expect that to change. So um, every three weeks, we still go back, and she gets her infusions. She has a port still, and you know she's she's still not out of the woods, but she's doing great. She's had a tremendous response. She's in remission. You know the the way they define remission anyway, it's it's always different for every type of cancer that they diagnose but in her case she's got a um, what they call a sustained remission which is really good she feels good for the most part she's got low side effects 
and she's traveling out here. She's out here with me almost every tournament. I think she's missed three this year, and I've played like 24. So um, she's That's out. Great. She's she's getting tired of traveling more than she's getting tired of, of her treatments, <laughs> and probably a little bit tired of me <laughs> too. Because yeah. you know, I, we were on the road. I was on the road by myself for basically 12 years, and she only came out to um, maybe two or three a year because the kids were busy at home and just was uh, hard to get the stars to line up where they could come out. And so uh, we went from that to her traveling almost exclusively out here. And, um, you know, all of a sudden it's, there's like a lot of time with each other. And it's great not to have to say goodbye, but she probably does, you know, in half seriousness, kind of get tired of being out here and being tired of me sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a normal life. I mean, people on, see it on TV and it seems so glamorous, but it's a lot of airports and hotel rooms and, yeah. you know, for especially for the wives, not having a structure and a and a routine and so i mean it, it's not easy i see that up close it's not easy um i mean it's it's definitely uh not you know the most difficult challenging you know profession to take on i mean it's if you can do it it's great work yeah and uh, <laughs> i i love playing golf out here and the traveling bit to me i i don't mind it i kind of enjoy you know the actually the travel itself you know the the moving around i'm not sure i love the being away from home that much you know it, the dogs and the kids are out of the house now they're empty nest but we're empty nest but it's um it's a it's a fun life to chase the little white ball and and to compete and, and really it's all about challenging yourself to see you know what what level you can you can play and so that that's a great part of this game and um there are some downsides and i'm sure my wife would bring up a few of the downsides for traveling but um you know overall we don't have much to complain about it's a it's a pretty pretty nice world out here and and uh, we get to see a lot of the world which is a uh, another nice bonus absolutely uh, you, you had kids when you were still in, in college right you started I had one young. kid yeah yeah and so most most guys you know they're traveling little ones yours already in college already mine are uh, in college one is a fourth year at georgia tech and one graduated in 2017 from clemson so he's out in in the workforce with Amazing. an actual actual job which is is <laughs> It is. It's great. Um, it's it's kind of weird now. My wife says, you know, um, she's always talking about how, uh, to kind of what you alluded to a minute ago, like she feels like she had this full-time job while the kids were at home and she was like mother hen and, you know, she was the CEO of our household while I was out here traveling and playing golf and now the kids are gone and she's kind of left with like, now what? What's my role? And um, I keep telling her, you know, we're, yeah, you raised the kids for a long time and, and did a great job of doing that. But now, you know, we're just raising adults. Just because they get older doesn't mean you stop raising them. Yeah. You know, we'll be raising them until they're 60 years old yeah. or more. And it's just all about, you know, us providing that, uh, uh, well, leadership as one thing. But there's so many different facets of being a parent that just develop and change and evolve over time that you just never stop raising them. I mean, Lisa has a degree in what, molecular biology? Yeah, I just learned how to say that. Molecular biology. I can pronounce all the syllables. Yeah. I mean, does she think about, oh, I could I could uh, do some research in the lab. I mean, is that a viable option for her? Uh, probably not anymore because she graduated in 1995. And um, I think it's safe to say that molecular studies and, uh, you know, genomics, map mapping the gene and all that stuff, have it has changed a lot in the last 23 years. So... Uh, I think what she has now is probably the basis from which she could probably go back to grad school and kind of almost start over. But uh, that was her plan. Ironically, she wanted to go into the field of uh, mapping the uh, 
the human genes and uh, the genome and projects that we're studying, like how genes work and uh, not just for hereditary purposes, but for disease purposes. And then two and a half years ago, she had got her diagnosis and that turned out to be one of the most important facets of her treatment is learning about her genes and what goes wrong in certain cells in your body that end up forming tumors that, you know, are basically kind of like, uh, you know, in, in car sales, we have the lemon law, you know, if, if it was cells, we'd have the lemon law would work on these cells too. They're just defects. Yeah. And over the, over years, you get little, uh, you get little dings and fender benders and, and, uh, nicks on your jeans, just like you do on your car. And, uh, those little nicks and, and, uh, fender benders on your jeans, when they reproduce, they, they code themselves and they propagate those, those imperfections. And that turns into cancer if it goes the wrong direction. And so, uh, ironically that she was planning to study that. And then she gave all that up to raise the children. And now, you know, it came right back into the forefront of her life. When, when you go into for her meetings with her doctors, you must feel left out. They're probably talking at a very high level. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm pretty fascinated by all that stuff, and I have been ever since she was in college. So um, I didn't learn a lot about it, but I remember her talking about it when she was taking her classes and, you know, organic chemistry and biochem and stuff like that. And um, just to hear sort of the outside edges of it, um, I, I can have a conversation with the doctors about her um, her diagnosis and her treatment and all that stuff, but... They don't really get into much of the scientific specifics of it. It's uh, yeah. It's more about established protocols. Yeah. Obviously, um, you're a cerebral guy, and that's can be a detriment as a golfer. I mean, I remember back maybe 2002, you had a little, you had a case of the yips you had to overcome. Yeah, shoot, yeah. And you were, um, was it Preston? Preston Waddington. Yeah, he was the guy. Yeah. He wasn't a sports psychologist. He he was a real heavy duty, you know, yeah. sort of uh, psychoanalyst in, in some ways. And w- what did you learn in, in through that self discovery that that helped you as a golfer? Well, when I started talking to Preston Waddington, who he's his technical uh, title, I think for his job would be he's a psychotherapist. So um, you know, he's a uh, his job for for some of your listeners who may not had therapy or anything like that is, you know, you would kind of go in and you talk through some of the things that bother you you're afraid of things you want things you're uh, nervous about things that you love anything just things that have a huge impact on your life in positive or negative way and you kind of dig down deep into your past and kind of try to figure out like environmentally what may have helped sort of form those beliefs opinions you know whatever and uh, so it helped to uh, kind of uncover some of my uh, I guess my fears on the golf course it's pretty normal i think for someone to be a little bit afraid when they get into certain situations out here playing golf especially when you're new because you feel like the whole world is sort of like unpacking your whole you know you're unpacking your life and um you kind of over overdo that you, you yeah. think that it's happening way more than it is i think that's pretty natural and uh, in my case i was um i was just dealing with some of that anxiety that I felt on the course about performance you know I was trying to live up to my own expectations and I had one early on in my career and I was starting to wonder like why why have I not won again you know what, what's wrong am I not was it a fluke you know I, I didn't want to be the one hit wonder right <laughs> there was just a lot of things and so um in my case I've always I've never been satisfied with just uh asking a question and receiving an answer like marching orders I always want to know why and that just doesn't apply to golf. It's other things in my life, too. I'm, I'm a why kind of person. And uh, Dr. Waddington kind of 
helped me walk through the whys of why I felt certain ways, uh, why I was out playing golf in the first place, you know, what my goals were. And uh, he helped me break it down into more simplistic kind of terms and, and helped me get into a place where I could think things through and, and break down the way I was feeling, listen to the way my body was sending me signals and, and use it to uh, keep me a little bit calmer under pressure and, you know, it turned into better results. This, this is deep stuff. I mean, you're talking about childhood trauma and... Yeah, I mean, well, I mean... To use that term loosely, but I mean... Yeah, to, to say that Stuart Sink had childhood trauma would be kind of a gross overstatement because, <laughs> I mean, I, 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 all I can say is I had a childhood. And uh, just like we all had, um, Dr. Waddington, one of his little phrases he used to always use with me and others was that um, his definition of a dysfunctional family is a family with more than one person. <laughs> and so I think that we all kind of fit into that category in one way or another. Yeah. And so, um, like it or not, you know, the, your upbringing, and it's not just your family also, it's your environment, your your friends, everything, you know, comes together in one giant bowl of soup. And uh, it it kind of helps you uh, forge these beliefs and opinions about the world and about the way you see things and about the way that things see you. And so um, it's not always a real perfect, like, match with reality. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that work can be difficult. I mean, anyone who's ever gone through kind of serious therapy, you have to really examine yourself. And most people don't want to do that. They just want to keep living in a blissful ignorance. So Yeah, and, and it's easy to do that. And But I'm, I'm thankful for golf because without golf, I probably would have never taken that kind of step. But golf means a lot to me. And uh, I felt like I was hindering my performance on the golf course with some of these feelings. And so I felt like I needed to go and investigate. If I had been doing another job, then uh, I, I have a feeling I probably wouldn't have d done any investigation. And uh, so golf, that's, that's just one of the many benefits that golf has had for me is that it's taught me so much about myself that I just don't know how I would have ever learned it without it. When I talk to people and I tell them what I do and they're general sports fans, but they're not into golf and they say, oh, golf is so boring. I say, are you kidding me? The human drama is riveting. I mean, you're all alone out there. You have no teammates to hide behind. You're just alone on this stage. And as opposed to other sports where it's so much about reaction and speed, the ball is just sitting there mocking you. Nothing happens <laughs> until you make it happen. Yeah. And that's why it's the most fascinating game because it's so internal. And I mean, I've always been struck in the past. You've, you've used words like fear and shame. I mean, you're candid about the mental battle and how deep it goes. And th there's a vulnerability in talking about those things. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that I learned from Waddington and uh, subsequently talking to um, other, um, other guys that are in that similar field, not necessarily like psychoanalysts, but, um, you know, and not necessarily sports psychologists either, but somewhere in that realm is that um, the only way you're really going to ever make progress forward is by really opening up and being totally vulnerable in that setting. Uh, if you're holding on to anything, you're just going to hold back and you're not going to ever make any progress. So um, I learned early on that being vulnerable is one of the things I needed to practice, first of all, because I wasn't very good at it. And that's, when you hear me talk about things like shame and fear and feeling you know, scared or weak or anxious, it's partly me practicing the exercises that I've learned over the years and that conditioning myself that there's nothing to be afraid of when you, you know, want to, when you talk about things like that, because 
everybody feels it. In fact, it's a way to sort of identify and connect with other people because a lot of times people hear it and they say like, wow, I feel like that too. And uh, in, yeah. in a way, you know, I'm, I want to help myself, but I also want to help other people too. I mean, I, I feel like I'm placed here in this role in my life, in this world to, you know, make an impact on other people too and help, help others. And, and uh, this is, uh, it's something that I think that it's, it's kind of an unnavigated landscape for a lot of people. Absolutely. I mean, I can think about plenty of times when I'm in a match on the last hole, I'd rather chip it to 10 feet than to four, because if you miss a 10 footer, it happens, you know, but the expectation, the closer you are, you got to make it. And yeah. like, it's, it's such a weird mental battle sometimes. It is. And, and the, what you just described is basically the, the, that was what I would call like the low hanging fruit for me, that same sort of feeling that, um, you know, I, I was afraid on short putts. I was afraid I was going to miss one because what would the people think? What would I think about myself? What would it feel like? Actually, I already knew what it would feel like because I've done it plenty of times sure. then before and since then. And it doesn't feel good, but I was afraid of that feeling. You know, that's low hanging fruit. But then once we started talking about that, it uncovered a lot more layers and uh, we got higher up on the tree, so to speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was, uh, it, it, it was something that I started out really wanting to uh, increase my performance and, and get my play better. But what the result was, beyond the performance thing, was that it was something I was pretty fascinated in. And uh, it, it's just something that I, I like investigating about myself and uh, helping others. And it's just some, a field that I'm interested in now. Do you think there are PJ Tour players who are more comfortable just aiming for the middle of the green and trying to finish 12th and actually put themselves in that position to win? and whether consciously or unconsciously, they just they just don't quite go for it because of the scrutiny? I think on a subconscious level, probably, um, I would say at least half the players really? feel that way. Subconsciously. Yeah. They don't know it, though. They don't know it. They there's But there's a pull that we all feel when we're coming down the stretch, 16, 17, 18 on Sunday, or maybe even before that, maybe around the cut, where um, you know where you should aim the ball, on an approach shot with a tucked pin. Of course, all the PGA Tour these days, pretty much all the pins are tucked. (laughs) You know where you should aim it. Uh, You know, mathematics and statistics and the green conditions, all the things that go into making your decision tell you exactly where you should aim it. But something in your body or your mind will pull you away from that and start to give you conflict in in your mind. And recognizing that moment is such a huge part of getting over that hump and freeing it up to go ahead and just take that aim and you know and take that aim doesn't always mean right at the flagstick you know of yeah. course that just means take that aim where you should aim yeah and uh i'd say subconsciously probably half the players on tour um they don't know what's happening but that's part of the separation between the, the best and the good do you know who they are i mean can you identify them no i don't know i don't know i mean uh because there's so many factors that go into a golf shot, when, especially when there's pressure involved. I always thought there was inside of all of us, and that means me, that means you, that means all your listeners. If you play golf, there's two golfers inside your body, and that is a golfer and a nervous golfer. There's two different players. And part of getting to a high level in competition, whether it's your club championship or the member guest or winning majors out here on tour, part of that is learning how both those golfers react under certain situations. And uh, knowing like what type of ball flights come out when you're nervous, uh, or what you can expect if you're flat. You know, I've played on 22 years now out on tour, and 
there's days when I come out and I'm just not really all that jazzed up about being here. I don't mean I'm not happy to be here. I just mean like my adrenaline just doesn't really sure. like pump. To totally. And so I feel a little bit flat. Well, I got to know what that feels like. You know, to me, that kind of feels like being at home on a Tuesday and playing with my friends. You know, I know how far I hit the ball. I know what kind of shot shapes I can expect, what kind of misses I can expect. And so I have to know that just the same way as I have to know what to expect if I'm hitting a 200-yard six iron on the 72nd hole and I'm, you know, in third place. Yeah. I got to know that, and that's the nervous golfer versus the uh, the golfer. That's really interesting. Can we, can we go back to Southern Hills? Because um, that, that's such a, a fascinating moment on so many levels, the U.S. Open and 01. So you're playing with Retief Goosen. You guys come to the last hole, and you're tied. And he hits a really great great shot to 12 feet or so for birdie. You go over the green. Can, can you pick up the narrative here? And Because and, yeah. some, peop some people don't remember this. Some people weren't <laughs> even alive for this. Yeah, it's hard to believe that was 17 years ago now. I, but I remember like it was yesterday. So you're in this dogfight for the Open. Yeah, so I hit it actually left of the green. Yeah. I hit my shot left in the rough. And then Retief hit a great shot. You know, from the fairway, it looked like it was about a foot. We get up there and it's 10 or 12 feet. And so uh, we're tied, 72nd hole, and I'm in the rough in this Bermuda looking. I had some green to work with, so it was doable. It wasn't an easy shot to judge just right. And I'm just thinking I, I need to get this ball up and down and have a chance because Retief is going to make probably a four, but there's about a you know 25% chance he's going to make a birdie. And uh, five really wasn't in the cards because he was literally 10 to 12 feet. And one of the, <laughs> one of the great putters ever, right? So And so uh, – so I hit my chip and it came out a little slow and my ball didn't even get inside his. I was probably like 14 feet and he was, you know, inside me. So I had to putt for my par first. And I just knew that was kind of the tournament right there. I needed to make that putt to force any extra holes or whatever. And I putted and, and uh, made a, a good stroke at it. And the ball took off where I wanted it. And it just, uh, I don't remember if it missed high or low, but it was just barely missed. It was a, a, a good run. But as soon as the ball missed the cup, I felt like, you know, that was the, the end. The wind just came out of my sails, and I was really just uh, not devastated, but, you know, I just was just – I was down. Yeah. Because I felt like I just bogeyed the last hole to lose. So uh, now I've got to face this uh, tap-in. It's probably about 18 inches, two feet, I don't know. And uh, my role at that point switched from trying to tie the tournament to just trying to get out of a chief's way because the spotlight was now his. Yeah. So I, uh, I don't even remember if I marked or if I uh, just – I know I didn't, like, hurry the putt. I went and gathered myself because I was – I remember thinking that the kind of the replay of the last couple shots was in my mind. You know, the, the five iron from the fairway. Yeah. Hit it too far left. The uh, chip just quite – didn't quite judge it right out of the rough. And then the putt. All that stuff was replaying in my mind as I walked into the ball, and uh, I could feel myself like trying to focus, but I had nothing. Yeah. And then my stroke was just—it wasn't even a stroke. It was kind of like a, a wave at the ball, and then the ball missed the hole. Yeah. You know, and that was part of the shame thing that we were talking about. Right. The the putt didn't matter to me at the time, except that I was trying to get out of Retief's way, and I just missed a really tiny putt with the world watching. Yeah. And that part was like an injury to my that, psyche. That's why I wanted to go there. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was tough. And then, um, to be honest, Retief, what he did in the next two minutes really didn't really hurt me that much more. It just kind of gave me almost like a wry smile, like <laughs> seriously. So Retief, you know, after I tapped in for my double, Retief hits his 
10 or 12 foot birdie putt about foot and a half past, two feet past, and misses the same putt. <laughs> so now it turns into a situation where if I just tapped mine in, you know, I would have tied. Yeah. And we would have gone to a playoff the next day. As it was, he played Mark Brooks in a playoff the next day and won. And I was in the locker room with Brooks watching that when, when all happened. And it was, it was such a eerie feeling. He didn't know whether to celebrate. You know, he thought he was literally zipping up his travel bag. I mean, he was, he was down the road. He yeah. thought he had no chance. But, I mean, there, there's so much to unpack there. I mean, first of all, it says something about you that you're a generous person, that all you want to do is give Retief the stage. I mean, you're still, you're grinding, there's a lot of money at stake on, there's Ryder Cup points. I mean, every putt means something, but in that moment, you just said, you know, I'm just going to give this guy his moment. So, I mean, that's a generous soul. Yeah, but don't give me credit for that, because that's just golf. That anybody in that position would have done the same thing to, uh, you know, once you felt like the tournament was over and the winner was about to finish up, the right thing to do in pro golf is to go ahead and bow out and give him the stage and so uh that's not generosity that's just that's part of the game of that's the etiquette out here you know that that's a a part of etiquette that probably most golfers really don't ever have a chance to uh understand but in the pro game when when you get to 72nd hole final group you know there's a little bit of a dance you do with the guy that's going to win and the guy that's going to lose yeah and in your career if you have a long career and you play really well you get to do that a dozen times maybe more if you're Tiger or Phil or somebody yeah. like that. Um, but, you know, occasionally you get to experience that and, and you just do what the right thing to do is, and that is to go ahead and get out of the way. The problem with the, the Monday morning quarterbacking is if you if you brush in your bogey putt, maybe that affects how Retief even hits his birdie putt. It certainly would affect how he lines up, um, you know, his par, his par putt, right? Because there's a cascading thing. If you... You know what I mean? Like, there's a a, a whole. Um, it could have affected it, but you, you can't say for sure if you if you'd made your two footer that you would have been in the playoff because no, it could, it, Retief could have done something different following you. Yeah, I my actually my miss putt didn't really affect Retief because he had Mark he Brooks, had Brooks already waiting. Yeah. yeah. So uh, once I was out of the way, it didn't matter if I made a six or a twenty on the hole. Yeah. He still had a two putt to win over Mark Brooks. Yeah. And so it didn't really change what he did. I do firmly believe that that U.S. Open was not mine to win in sort of a destiny kind of way. I don't know. I really believe much of that. But I don't, do you, I don't think that Retief, if I tapped in, I don't think he would have three-putted. Yeah. I think that my miss actually did affect him because he's – you remember that, – that's, that's what I mean because it changes the whole energy around the green. Yeah. Um, and, you, and you do need to remember, too, that the ninth and 18th greens that week were prepared differently than the other course yeah, because – you know, the greens were severe, very yes. severe. And USG screwed it up. They left the greens. Uh, they didn't cut them the same height that they cut the other greens on the course or the practice green. So the, the, there was a little bit more in the way of footprints, and there was some little speck of doubt in our minds about how hard to hit the putts because it was late in the day. Of course. And you come, you know, after playing 16 other holes, if you take away the ninth green, yeah. 16 other holes with a certain speed, and you get to that hole, and it's a slight different speed. Retief, he did have a weird putt for a – for a 10 or 12 foot putt, let's just call it a 12 footer. It was, he would hit, hit his ball just short of the hole. And the, the hole there is going uphill severely. The green's kind of banked into a severe uphill. And he was just short of the hole. And I would say that it was probably a level putt, but because of the angle and the, um, the way that it contrasted to the slope around the green, his putt looked like it was downhill. Yeah. 
Can you understand what I mean? Yeah, oh, no, so I was there. I'm you, trying to paint a picture of what the, the green no, you, looks like. It's like cut like a bench into the side of this hill. It looks like it's downhill, but in reality, it's probably not. Yeah. Then you take the extra grass on the green and the footprints and the lateness of the day and the pressure, and there was kind of a lot to compute in that putt he had where it's understandable that he might not have got the speed exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was fascinating. So was was it a straight line cause and effect of missing that putt that then the next year you started experiencing the yips? I mean, is that... No, I, that, that putt was more like a, a symptom downstream from already having that problem before because I was already starting to feel like the a little bit of pressure on short putts and uh, other parts of the game too, but especially putting. Uh, putting is just such a... It's such a fine division between success and failure and it's right there for the world to see yeah you know it's either make or miss <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh so that's where that's why i referred to putting as the low-hanging fruit yeah and so that had already started for me and uh i i had started oh gosh i don't know if i'm right about this i think i started talking to preston waddington before that um I'm not really sure. I can't remember I, if it was I, after I, that or before. I went back and did a little research. I think it was after. Okay, it was, it was I think after. it was early 2002 when you started talking to Waddington. Okay, 2002. Yeah. yeah. So um, so what I would have done when I started talking to, to Preston Waddington was um, our first conversation would have been something like this. All right, I've had a few times my missed short putts, and I feel really anxious about it. And so now when I get over other short putts, I feel more anxious that I might do it again, as evidenced by Southern Hills and a couple other incidents, and he knew about them. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, that became part of the body of evidence. But it was more like a continuation. It was kind of like that brought it to the surface where I was like, all right, um, I need to do something about this because I, I don't want to continue like this. So you do all that self-examination and you begin a, a long ascent. And, I mean, you, you played some spectacular golf in the, in the 2000s. Mm. Um, and, of course, you did have the misfortune of your peak coincided with Tiger Woods's peak. And... You know, it makes me laugh when these young guys say, I'd like to play Tiger at his best. Like, no, you don't. Look at your teeth kicked in. You have no idea how good this guy was. I mean, you saw it. You lost a playoff at Bridgestone, lost yeah. in the finals of the match play. I mean, you saw Tiger at his absolute best. So yeah. I'm sure on, as, a, as a fan of the game and all that, you're fortunate that you experienced it. But as a competitor, it had to have been tough because this guy was almost unbeatable. Yeah, he was. And it, it was, I, I would say it was a mix of misfortune and, and great fortune, too, because uh, the Playing golf on the PGA Tour has become pretty lucrative, and really we have one person to thank, and that's Tiger Woods. Yeah. And Tim Fincham probably to a certain yeah. extent. But Tiger just raised the bar out here um, in so many ways. Um, I mean, it's obvious that he raised the financial stakes that we play for, which is, is great. But also, playing with Tiger, I think, so many times on Sundays when he won, and sometimes on Sundays when I won, sometimes, you know, I played near him, uh, watch him on TV, just watching and learning, like, how does that guy go about doing things that's differently, different from the way I go about it? What can I do to get better without Tiger setting that bar for me? You know, I would have probably fell a little shorter. And um, that may have translated to more wins without Tiger in the mix. Who knows? But yeah. I don't really care because um, in the end, I'm just trying to be as good as I can be at golf and as good as I can be at, my, at living my life and being the person I want to be, and wins and miscuts and all that stuff just is sort of like a, that's a, a secondary category that takes care of itself. Yeah. And in fairness, the WGC one, didn't he finish second? I mean, I, 
I think he might have. I think he did. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. I don't. I don't think I played with Tiger. No, I didn't play with Tiger. I played with Chris DeMarco on yeah. Sunday in yeah. twosomes, but Tiger was right there, and I think he ended up finishing second. I was. I, I think I won by uh, three or four shots. Yeah. So you you, you nipped him at least once, and uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you get a chance to nip Tiger when he's the top in the world. You know that that was something to hang your hat on for sure, and. Um, it was, uh, it was, we had a great battle. One of my favorite tournaments was, was uh, that uh, at Bridgestone, you know, yeah. at Firestone. I can't remember if it was 06 or 07. I think it was 06. 06, yeah. Yeah, because uh, we went from that tournament straight to uh, play a practice round over at the K Club yeah. for the Ryder Cup, so it would have been 06. You know, um, I had some scrappy putts on 16, 17, and 18 to keep uh, two birdies and, and, a, and a par putt on 18 to keep it going, and then a few putts to keep the playoff going. We played four holes, and Tiger ended up winning. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> what, what was your relationship like with him? Were you, I know he respected you because you always you kept putting yourself there. Yeah, I'm sure we have a mutual respect for each other. Um, to be honest, uh, we don't know each other all that well. I've known him since I was 17. Um, but as Tiger Woods sort of set up his career out here, you know, he um, he was a very private person, and I'm, I know a lot of people in the media felt that. And sure, he, he kept a lot of things kind of close and didn't really give up a lot. And so. Um, we're we're not super close or anything, but we, uh, you know, we we have a definite mutual respect for each other, and and I, I know, uh, I, I I'm really happy to see Tiger playing good golf again and being back out here. He looks like he feels great, and I know golf means so much to him, and he's been through so much that I'm I'm happy for him that he's got golf in his life again. Do you sense that he's done some of that self discovery that that you did? Honestly, I haven't thought about that. I, I don't know. I'm, I know he's been through some of those uh, centers where they probably do a little bit of that. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, just from what I've, you know, seen and read on, on the in the media. But um, I have a feeling he's probably done. Now, whether he's, um, whether he's bought into it or not, who knows? Who knows? But um, he's uh, he just seems like he's in a lot happier place than uh, even – I think he feels – it seems to me like he feels – better about things now in his life than he did you know maybe 12 15 years ago when you know he was just stepping on throats and uh that was his he was programmed to just defeat and uh it didn't matter if it was a golf course or a player or anything he was going to win and um i think now it seems like he's a little bit more um rounded out yeah that's nice um uh, so now now let's journey across the pond to turnberry because that's obviously a defining week for you when you think when you think about um, you know the British Open that you won, what what are the memories? Even was it was it something early in the week that told you that something special was brewing? Was it was it one shot on a Thursday or Friday that just came off so perfect? I mean, take me you know into the the recesses of your your memory bank here. Well, I, I had a like a momentum shift there um, on Wednesday night. You know, it stays light so late over there. Turnberry's in Scotland; it's pretty far north. And so it stays light. You can hit balls on the range till you know, 10 o'clock easily with enough light. So um, that year I had struggled. Second half of 08, first half of 09, I'd really struggled with my game, and I'd sought out a few different uh, coaches to sort of change things up and ditch the long putter. I was putting bad. People always ask, like, why'd you switch to the long putter? And I said, because of bad putting. And they say, why'd you switch away from it? Because of bad putting. Same answer. <laughs> so um, I've always just been kind of a streaky putter, you know, Hot stretches, cold stretches, and um, I don't like to sit around and wait for something to happen. I, I like to do something about it. So, uh, ditch the long putter, start working with um, a new coach on my, um, like a sports psychologist, Dr. Morris Pickens, Dr. Yeah. Mo. 
Yeah. And uh, together with Mo, completely rebuilt my entire putting routine, my practice, everything. Went to the shorter putter, or short putter, traditional grip, and um, completely just overhauled my entire putting. And it gave me something to latch onto other than feeling like I was putting poorly. And so uh, about sixth tournament, here we are at Turnberry after all this overhaul. So I've got number one, I'm, I'm kind of building the puzzle up for you. Number one, my putting is completely new still and I'm completely obsessed with like what I'm doing with my putting. Yeah. Number two, um, I go to the range on Wednesday night, struggling with my ball striking, not really getting much out of my rounds and um, you know, I feel like I'm hitting it kind of wild. And I've worked with Butch Harmon, so um, he and I had, you know, discussed it and seen each other, and nothing was really clicking. You know, it's kind of a, a little bit of a, a low sort of ebb in our, um, in our working together. And I go to the range. On the way to the range, I run into Mike Tarico, good friend of mine. You know, the sure. the yeah, host, great. great. And um, he's coming back from the media center, which is near the range, and we chat. How's the kids, you know, the pleasantries for about a minute or so. And then um, we, we walk apart. I'm going towards the range, and he turns around and says, Oh, Stewie, by the way, you got anything this week? <laughs> Meaning, you know, yeah. how's your game? What can we talk about on TV or whatever? And I turned around and said, Mike, I'm going to be honest, I got nothing. <laughs> That's where my game was. Yeah. You know, I didn't feel like I had anything. <laughs> and so he's like, well, you never know. So I turn on and go to the range. My caddy, Frank Williams, is with me, and – I might have been the only guy there. I don't remember, but it's probably seven, eight o'clock at night on Wednesday, and uh, I get over there and I start hitting a few shots. And thinking back through a few of the things that Butch and I had worked on over the last five years, and just decided that I'm I'm not really doing anything good right now with my ball striking. I'm just going to go back and do something from a point in time when I remember feeling like dominant with my ball striking, and I'm just going to commit to doing that. I don't care what it is or what feels right, but I'm just gonna, I just decided really before I even started hitting balls, like what's it gonna be? So you have, you have like an encyclopedia of swing thoughts, and you just yeah. plucked one. Yeah, that's right. That's basically right. And I went back to this <laughs> swing thought that I had with Butch from about a, a year and a half prior to that, where I was just thinking big and slow, big and slow, big and slow, and trying to turn my shoulders. Uh, a really full shoulder turn. I was 36, so my body was starting to you know get a little bit out of that youth and yeah. getting in more into the, you know, yeah. mid age. So I felt like I might've lost some of my turns. So I just said, I'm just going to focus on being big with my shoulder turn and slow with my rhythm and transition. So I went to the range with the first ball and thought big and slow. That's what I'm doing. And I pured it for 20 minutes on the range and I pured it for 72 holes. <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> and you know, the first day at, at Turnberry that year, it was flat calm. Like it was cloudy and perfect weather. It was like playing at the, in Palm Springs in the wintertime. It was absolutely perfect weather. And everybody shot pretty low. I shot 66, which was four under. And uh, I was probably in the top 10, but there was a lot of guys under par. Yeah. And then Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, it blew and it was cold and it got more typical. And you had to really strike it well. And uh, I, I played, um, solid golf the whole week hit it really good drove it well just uh and then my new putting you know was was right there to to keep me scoring and um to save some pars if i needed to and i was excited about it plus you put tom watson in the mix and me being a sports fan 
I was engulfed with the story of Tom Watts. When did you first, when did it first hit you? Because, I mean, Watson had, you know, he, he was playing well regularly for a round or two, you know, at the majors. And it wasn't unheard of for him to, to have a, one good round and maybe even two. But then at some point he would, he would fade away and, you know, that's fine. But when did you get swept up in the story? Well, it's funny to, to talk about when I first thought about Tom Watson at the British Open. You have to go back to April that year. Tuesday of Augusta, 2009. It's raining. It's kind of cold and miserable. There's not that many people there. Even the patrons didn't want to show up that day. But I'm going out to play a few holes. And uh, I go to the first tee, and there's Tom Watson. Hey, you want to join up? So, sure. And I, I knew Tom a little bit, but his career and my career really didn't coincide. I mean, he pretty much had stopped playing by the time I started on the tour in my rookie year. Yeah. He occasionally popped up, you know, and I saw him at the majors, but I didn't really know him that well. We go out on the golf course. It's wet. It's cold. It's windy. And Augusta, you know, is pretty long. Yeah. And it's a demanding course. And, and Tom is not the longest hitter anymore. But he's hitting these drives that are just like low bullets. And in the crosswinds, they're just going straight. And every shot he hits is like out of the center of the club face. He's flagging iron shots and hybrids <laughs> yeah. and he's just hitting these beautiful chips around the greens and after nine holes actually after about four holes my thought was this guy could really do something at the british open interesting isn't that something i'm playing with him in a practice round at augusta in weather that's like the opposite of what you see over there i mean in the air it was the same as what you see over there but on the ground it was the opposite with yeah. soft wet conditions and my thought was like man this ball flight how solid he's hitting it He's got control of his ball. This guy, he's made for the British Open. And, of course, I knew at the time, my point at the time was thinking, oh, I guess that's why he's won five of those. Yeah. Of course, I would have had no idea that he would go and do what he did at Turnberry two majors later. So the whole world's rooting for Tom Watson. And no matter who he was competing against, they were going to root for Tom Watson. You happened to be the guy who was standing in the way of what would have been maybe the best sports story of all time. So after having done all this mental work, how do you keep any of those thoughts at bay um, and just say, I, I can't worry about Tom Watson. I just got to keep hitting shots. I mean, how did you do that? Actually, the way that I held those thoughts at bay was the same way that I try to hold all the thoughts at bay when I'm coming down the stretch of a tournament. And that is I welcome those thoughts in and, and sort of discuss them with all the voices going on in my head. They're all it's like a <laughs> discussion going on. Um, no, I didn't try to hold anything off or keep it at bay I wanted to deal with it I yeah. wanted the chance to that's why I work so hard and that's why I play golf to put myself in positions where I need to figure stuff out and you know how am I going to handle it so um him being in the position that that he was in um as he came down um the last two holes I think I was three groups in front right so I had a little bit of time there I watched the finish and it, when he hit the fairway in 18 it looked like it was probably over because he needed to make par yeah. And then his second shot, he, you know, carried it on the green, which was kind of a no-no there because it was downwind so much and you couldn't carry it on the green and stop it. And so uh, ball rolled over the green. We all know what happened there. You know, yeah. the shot from behind the green on TV looked pretty pretty docile, but it, it wasn't. So it was steep, scary. steep hill and yeah. a lot of rough and all kind of messed, messed up turf. And so it was a tough shot to get close and he made bogey. But in that time when uh, between – his ball rolling over the green and the playoff starting, I kind of prepared myself because I knew this is exactly what 
I needed to be doing, you know, I, I, I didn't want to hold it off and not think about the world rooting for Tom and not think about the chance that I'm going to win my first major and all that. So, um, all I planned to do was I want to get to the T second. I didn't want to get to the T first. And that, I know you're thinking that sounds like a really great plan. <laughs> that's, that's really what you thought of. No, you don't want to hear the ovation. That makes, makes total sense for me. So the, the first tee in this four-hole playoff was the fifth tee, which I don't know why they picked it. It was like the farthest tee out on the golf course. Yeah, that was weird. So uh, we had to take golf carts out there and all that stuff. And so, um, But basically, when I got there, Tom was not there yet. There was already a crowd of maybe 100 or 200 people by the tee. I went straight to the Porta John and just waited it out. You were hiding in the John? Yes, I was hiding in the John. <laughs> Where champions are made. Yeah. And uh, there, I remembered from playing there, um, you know, the, the three or four days previous that there was a little port john tucked into the gorse bush about 80 yards off the tee to the left. And I just went straight to that and just waited it out. And now when I heard the ovation, you know, for Tom and all the shouts, you know, they go on Tom over there. You know how they are. Yeah. And they love Tom Watson. He's like a, a adopted Scotsman. Yeah. When I heard that, that was my cue. Out of the Port of John, I come and walk back to the tee, and, and I got what I wanted. I wanted I wanted Tom to hear that there could be at least some applause for me. Yeah, I didn't want to just be standing on the tee when there was that rousing ovation when he walked to the tee, and I, I felt like that might be a little bit overwhelming. So I wanted him to hear some applause for me. Now, that's almost all the applause he heard from me the rest of the way, but at least he heard something, and I worked I my plan. I love that. That's like stagecraft. So it sounded like you had a little edge going to that playoff. Like you were not going to back down on Tom Watson. Like you were going to bring it. And, yeah. And, and well, I I sensed that that Tom was uh, fading just a little bit because, and the reason is because the the second shot, a, a Lynx player like Tom Watson to his caliber, which is you know probably unmatched yeah. in history, would have known that the shot on that hole would have been to land it short of the green. Now, you know, I, I had not had that great of a record in the Open Championship, but even I knew. In my yardage book, I had a note that said, you can't land it past five short yeah. of the green. Right. And my caddy and I had a zone five to 15 yards short, and that's where we tried to land our ball every time on that hole. And my shot there landed in the zone, and it, you know, with the firm conditions and the wind and everything, it bounced on the front of the green, it rolled back pin high. So um, when Tom hit his ball and it carried on the green, that to me showed that there might be some fatigue because that was a decision-making error. Yeah. And almost all majors, for all that matter, almost all golf tournaments at a high level come down to someone blinking in the decision-making category. Yeah. And I felt like Tom blinked a little bit there. And it's no slight to Tom whatsoever, but that's just what happens in tournaments. I mean, he's won five Opens, but he yeah. played in a lot, and he's lost a lot more than that. And so um, we all lose a lot in golf, and I sense that he might be drained a little bit because of that decision. And I felt very confident. I finished well. I was, uh, you know, I had this swing thought that I was working with. My putting uh, routine was on fire. And I just felt like I, it was my moment to seize. And uh, not that it was some intricate plan, but I wanted to get to T second. And the fact that I made the plan and then did the plan, that put me in the right frame of mind to go and compete for those four holes. And I remember watching that playoff. I and mean, I was out there walking around, and I was struck by 
you were merciless, but in the right way. I mean, Tom, Tom was struggling and you didn't get sucked into that. You're like, I'm just going to keep hitting great shots and making putts and do what a champion does. And I remember thinking at the time, wow, I didn't know Stuart Sink was such a badass, but it was, <laughs> it was great because that's what had to be done at the moment. I mean, you can't play down to his level. Um, you know, you have to, you have to finish the tournament. So that, that was, that yeah. was strong. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with being a badass or anything. It's just, uh, you know, that the moment you want and, uh, I had a choice and my choice was to uh, put my best foot forward and compete to the level that I knew I could and that I wanted to and and uh, you just don't know how many chances you're going to have to be in a position you know to win your major uh, to win any major let alone you know with Tom Watson writing this unbelievable story um, it was a distraction that I kind of used in my favor all right last question it's a trick question what is your swing thought this week I think I'm going to go back to the Turnberry one. <laughs> I was going to say, it has to be big and slow. No, no I mean, that's, on. no, it only works. Lightning in a bottle only works for a little while. No um, way. I mean, no, I mean, I, I'm working with a new coach, Mike Lipnick now um, for the last six years. He's the guy from my home course in Atlanta, Sugarloaf. And um, we have pretty much the same little fundamentals that we work on all the time. I've got a, a toolbox with about six different little keys in it. I always have two of them that are kind of in the forefront of my mind. And uh, this summer, uh, there's, I've been kind of relying on a couple of things that just have to do with mostly my posture and, and how tall I am, that it's easy to sort of lose your posture and unwind coming down. And uh, so that's kind of my thought, you know, for the last really more or less couple of years. And uh, it's, it's good for me. My ball striking has been all right uh, most of the time. Um, when I play really well, it's when my short game and putting are, are on. And when I don't play well, usually those aren't that great. Okay, tall and slow. That's the swing thought. Tall and slow. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll call it stay tall. <laughs> All yeah. right, Stuart, thanks for doing this. It was a great pleasure and uh, you know, to give us a guided tour of your psyche. That was, that was very interesting. So, well, thanks for having me on. You got it. All right, this is Alan Shipnuck signing off. Thanks for listening, and we'll do it again soon.